Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is episode one, Welcome to Ergasia. Being the first episode, it is necessarily an introduction to this podcast, an explanation of whys and wherefores. Hopefully this introduction will give you a taste of what lies ahead and will encourage you to stick around and explore with me the interconnections between the life of faith and the world and reality of work. To begin with, let's start with the name, Ergasia. It comes from the Greek and means essentially work or employment. The name itself reflects the focus of this program, how faith and theology can encounter, critique, and enable human flourishing within the reality of waged labour in modern industrialised living. This is not to suggest that other forms of human work, such as voluntarism or work in the home, are neither important nor will they be the subject of future episodes. Rather, it simply reflects the central role and importance which waged labour has come to take within modernity a centrality that has significant implications for human life in general and the life of faith in particular. I am a Christian minister and therefore the subjects tackled in this podcast will be approached from a Christian perspective. This is not to say that other faiths have nothing useful to contribute to the subject of work, life and economics and hopefully the future may even bring the opportunity to explore interfaith perspectives on this issue. But I do not presume to speak for other faiths. Moreover, I believe there is something unique and distinctive which Christian faith can bring to bear when it comes to the issue of work, economics and life. Therefore, this is an unashamedly Christian program, utilising the perspectives and resources of the Christian faith. But that only raises the question, what do you mean by Christian? That, to some extent, is an entirely subjective process, a combination of my own particular life experiences, political, social and economic worldviews, and encounter with and reflections upon the mysteries and demands of the Christian faith. On the other hand, it is also a matter of objective formation, of training and theological education, of the theological and ethical traditions within Christianity which have sustained Christians across history and which will shape the future of the Christian communion. So if I can bring the subjective and the objective together, let me state for the record that I describe myself as an orthodox, trinitarian, mainstream Christian. 
I believe the gospel proclaims the unqualified dignity of all human people, a dignity vested in humanity's creation in the likeness and image of God. This is witnessed not only by the incarnation through which God, in the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus of Nazareth, joined humankind in its earthly life, but also in the events of Good Friday and Easter, in which Jesus suffered injustice at human hands and rose in glorious resurrection in order to overcome the power of death and injustice and reconcile human existence to the very life of God. In other words, God in Christ entered into human life in the fullest sense of the word, including the experience of injustice and death. And in the resurrection and the ongoing operation of the Holy Spirit in the world declares the dignity of the human person and their liberation from all the forces that dehumanize and destroy. But what does this mean in practical terms? From my perspective, this means that what the Christian faith unequivocally declares is the subordination of all prerogatives, political, social and economic, to the prerogative of human dignity and flourishing, which itself is a manifestation of God's unconditional love for humankind. This being the case, the Gospel critiques all political perspectives, all economic and social philosophies, and all systems of human workplace organization from the point of view of the kingdom of God. It necessarily follows from this that all such systems and philosophies fall short of the perfection of God, just as every individual falls short of the fullness of life into which God calls us. No one political perspective, no one economic theory, no one system of labor organization can claim to be aligned with the will of God for human life. They are all defective, and they all require the critique that enables their realignment to God's love for humankind. And while I'm at it, this is what I mean by sin. Those aspects and realities of human life which demean, destroy, and dehumanize and which accordingly alienates human life from the life of God. We are all of us sinners, and it follows that every human institution, political, social, and economic, is corrupted by sin. But rather than being an occasion for self-flagellation and denigration, it is instead an opportunity for reflection and renewal. This, after all, is what the word repent actually means, not a self-destructive wallowing in our imperfection, but a turning back toward God and toward the love of God. Repentance is a recommitment to the life of dignity and fullness to which God calls us, and to the reorientation of human institutions and prerogatives towards the prerogatives of God's kingdom. Now, in case you're wondering whether this means I am advocating for the introduction of a theocracy, and in particular of a Christian theocracy, let me be clear. 
I absolutely support the separation of church and state. But I wish to make two points clear. Firstly, the separation of church and state does not mean the effective silencing of religious perspectives in matters of public debate. Secularism, properly understood, is not the relegation of religious perspectives to the realm of private observance. Rather, it is those perspectives taking their place alongside all other perspectives in the discussion and debate of public issues. The assertion that people of faith should keep their religion out of politics is as absurd and as offensive as the suggestion that atheists or humanists should keep their atheism or humanist perspectives out of politics. The second point I wish to make is that, in my view, the Church has not sufficiently separated itself from the state, and that this reality has in many ways prevented it from undertaking its mission of prophetic critique. Indeed, and especially in the industrialized West, the Church has become so thoroughly co-opted by the prevailing culture, and its inner life so ordered and constrained by a symbiotic dependence on the arms of government or private institutions, as to have effectively converted the Church into a secular organization, one in which the Church itself has begun to adopt the forms and prerogatives of the secular culture in which it is embedded. The reasons for this are multiple and complex. Suffice to say, they have in many ways, in my view, stifled the voice of the Church and of the Gospel's proclamation of human dignity and restricted the Church's activity to traditional realms of public welfare and pastoral care. And nowhere in my view is this more apparent than in the Church's disengagement from the world of work and its surrendering of authority in matters of workplace and economic organisation to technocrats, ideologues, politicians and corporate executives. For despite more than a century of papal encyclicals asserting the rights of workers to dignity and justice in employment, despite the historical links between some Christian traditions such as Methodism and the rise of the Union Movement in 19th century England, despite the emergence of movements such as Christian Socialism and the Christian Workers' Movement, despite the appearance and reappearance of orders such as the worker-priests, and despite the long historical tradition of Christian monasticism and the ordering of the human day in such a way that work is only part of daily life and not its predominating feature, the Church in the early 21st century is almost totally excluded from the world of work. And this exclusion has occurred not merely as a consequence of the hostility or indifference of the corporate world and its desire to maximize profitability and efficiency without what it regards as the interference of external agencies, but as a consequence of the church buying into the cultural assumption that faith should be a private and not a public matter, a willing co-option that has caused the Church to retreat from the world around it 
including the world of work, the predominating reality of humankind in modernity. The Church itself has participated in and facilitated the fiction that who Christians are when they gather for worship on Sunday, or indeed any other day, is a separate thing from who they are the rest of the week when they're at work. And this bifurcation of human life is reflected in the Church itself, especially in its own conduct as an employer. As noted above, the Church has adopted many of the forms and prerogatives of the institutional corporate sector, and this includes replicating many of the most destructive features of waged labour. Moreover, the Church itself appears unable to make links between its own conduct as an employer and the missional summons to prophetic critique, which is part and parcel of its own existence. For how can the Church meaningfully engage with and critique the political, social and economic realities by which human life is beset when it reproduces those realities for its own employees and agents? The point of me saying this is not to accuse the Church of hypocrisy or to suggest my own moral superiority. As noted above, we are all sinners and I include myself in that category. Rather, it is to argue for the development by the Church, in all its traditions and variations, of a theology of work, one that enables the Church to reflect theologically upon and articulate from the Gospel perspective of universal human dignity what exactly work is in human life, the role which it plays, and the ways in which work is deformed and abused so that it becomes destructive and dehumanizing. In other words, to articulate how work is both life-affirming and God-oriented, and how it is sinful and alienating. And the necessity for the Church to develop such a theology is not merely to critique the social, political and economic structures by which it is surrounded and within which it operates, but which itself replicates and through which it participates in the harmful realities of work. In my view, a theology of work will be of inestimable help to the Church in its own repentance, and in its own reorientation of its inner life to the life of God, and the prophetic mission into which it is called. It is in the hope of making some contribution to this cause that I have created this podcast. Having, as it were, stated my case, let me give some indication as to what lies ahead. At this stage of my planning, the topics to be covered will fall into three broad categories, historical, contemporary, and theological. 
these categories may be added to in future, and there will inevitably be crossover and common ground between them. But at this stage of proceedings, this is how my vision is shaping up. Historical subjects will be exactly that, an examination of the Church's historical engagement with and traditions concerning work and economics. Such an examination will necessarily have both contemporary and theological implications, but the historical perspective will be the predominating focus. Topics to be covered within this category include an examination of papal encyclicals relevant to the world of work, the history of monastic approaches to work, and the connections between various Christian traditions and secular organisations such as trade unions. Again, the contemporary category is self-evident. This will address issues of faith, work and economics whose import is a matter of contemporary relevance for the Church and for Christians. Of course, no examination of contemporary issues can proceed without an application of the historical context or its theological implications. But the prevailing focus will be on the immediacy of the issue under discussion. Matters to be included in the contemporary category include an examination of other modes of work beyond waged labour, as well as the relationship between the arts and issues surrounding work and economics. Hopefully, this category will also enable scope for interviews with contemporary practitioners within the work-faith interface. Finally, the category of theology will probably be the most technical of the categories, dealing as it will with Christian theology and its perspectives on work and economics. Included in this category will be reviews of relevant works by Christian theologians, specific theological perspectives such as Sabbath theology, and a general examination of what a theology of work might look like. I know a word like technical sounds foreboding, but it is my intention to keep the use of specialist jargon to a minimum and to unpack and explain it as best I can when its use is unavoidable. So that's a very brief sketch of the future as I see it at present. I am of course open to suggestions as to other categories and topics which listeners may think are relevant to this podcast. So let me conclude with two brief housekeeping matters. The first concerns the timing of episodes. At this stage, my hope is to release at least one episode a month. That is to say, one episode every four or so weeks. If that seems like a sparse publishing schedule, please bear in mind that I'm both an ordained minister currently serving a congregation and that I also have a family. In other words, I have pre-existing commitments on a number of fronts, and the research and preparation required to produce 
Each episode of Ergasia requires balancing of competing priorities. Can I suggest to listeners wishing to keep track of each new episode as it appears that you either subscribe to this blog or to an RSS feed that will enable you to be notified as episodes are published. My second point is a disclaimer. As noted above, I am an ordained minister, specifically an ordained minister of the Uniting Church in Australia, a union of the Methodist, Presbyterian and Congregationalist traditions. However, the views which I, or any future participants in this podcast express, are those of myself or the aforesaid participants alone. They should not be received, or in any way understood, as the views of the Uniting Church in Australia. Ergasia is a wholly personal project, and not an official organ or publication of any Christian denomination. So, having gotten that out of the way, let me say, welcome to Ergasia. I hope to have the pleasure of your company in future. For more information, visit the website at www.ergasia.podbean.com. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.